Um, you can tell the difference that I'm German and Obed's British by our shoe choice. He's got those nice Reeboks. I've got that Adidas, you know? <laughs> it's, how you, it's how you tell the difference in Europe, what kind of shoes you're wearing. <laughs> yeah. Well, good morning, Kings Cross. Um, I'm so excited to be with you all here. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, like Obed said, my name is Tylon. Uh, I've been a college minister here in UC San Diego with the Navigators uh, for the past three years. And actually, my wife Katie and I will be moving to Germany um, in the next couple of months here uh, to do college ministry with the Navigators there in the city of Dresden. So I'm super, super excited about that, hence my, hence my Adidas. Um, and, you know, Katie is my wife. She's my better half, not only because she clearly has a much better voice than I do, <laughs> um, but also because she doesn't have to lay claim to our church's unfortunate title of resident Florida man, which is me. <laughs> Um, I grew up in Florida. We were actually just in Florida um, about a month ago. There were no alligators for us, thankfully, but there was a hurricane that passed by. Uh, we got a band of rain right when we were at Disney World, which was a good time, which I know this is an unpopular opinion, but personally, I think Disney World is better than Disneyland. And I, yeah, I know I'm in California. I'm in enemy territory, but I'm just right, and you can fight me if you want. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Um, yeah, let's go ahead and pray, and then, and then we'll jump in. I clearly need prayer, so. <laughs> uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for um, this time that we have to, uh, to be together today in fellowship and in community, to worship and to glorify you, Lord, to hear from your word. God, I pray that you would really open up our hearts to receive from your psalms this morning. Um, Lord, would they uh, be a source of hope, a source of strength, a source of encouragement for us, and a way that we can um, connect all the more deeply with you. And Lord, I pray this in your holy name. Amen. All right. So as Pastor Obed had mentioned already, uh, this week we're kicking off a short uh, summer series in the book of Psalms, looking specifically at Psalms that have been a source of strength or encouragement or comfort um, for us in the midst of this season of the pandemic over the past year and a half. And I'm personally super, super excited to, to share with you all one of my favorite songs, as well as to hear from our subsequent speakers over the course of the next four weeks, um, as they share out of, out of some of their um, experience as well. Um, and since this is our first week, I feel like kind of obligated that I need to introduce the book of Psalms, just in case some of you guys are unfamiliar. So I'm going to give just a quick, quick introduction to what the Psalms is and what it's really all about. And so the Psalms are basically a collection of Hebrew pro poetry written over a large period of ancient history. That's just what they are. And personally, I'm a bit of a Bible nerd. That's, that's kind of the reason I'm up here. Uh, but if you'll let me geek out for just a second, which it's probably also not going to be the first time that I do this today. Um, but I just have to say that, that the artistry in some of these Psalms is just absolutely beautiful as you get different authors from the course of Hebrew history really exploring deep emotions and theological truths, lament and sorrow, praise and joy, prayers and songs in some pretty, honestly, masterful poetry. And poems throughout the Bible serve a slightly different purpose than a lot of what the Bible is made of because the Bible is uh, primarily a narrative. Um, it's a narrative story with characters and settings and stuff. But a good chunk of the Bible, somewhere between a quarter and a third, is actually poetry, which is kind of surprising. Um, but the poetry in it serves a bit of a different purpose. 
right? Um, the poems, they are designed to ignite your imagination about the nature of who God is, about the nature of the creation around us, about the nature of humankind and all of these different themes through the use of verbal art. And so as we dive into these psalms um, over the course of this next week, I really encourage you guys to just kind of like listen and to absorb it and to let your imagination kind of go as the, as the scriptures guides you and to really deeply experience them because that's how they're designed. They're a bit different than the poems they're used to, but, th- but we're specifically designed to cause us all to slow down and ponder what's being said. It's a little bit like looking at a diamond. You know, it gets more beautiful and more complex the longer you look at it and as you look at it from different angles, you know. Um, just like you look dif- more beautiful from different selfie angles. I just realized that's what this looks like. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it gets more beautiful and more complex the more you turn it over. And the Psalms display deeper and deeper truths, imagery, wisdom, or even emotions through the more that we ponder them. And that, in turn, allows us to connect even more deeply with God. And so all of that to say, I love the Psalms. And because they are so deep and multifaceted and diverse, they are an excellent place to go pretty much in every season of our lives, but especially in times of hardship. And for me, that's been particularly true over this past year and a half. So as I was preparing this sermon, I was kind of setting myself back to my mindset of, of where I was in March of April, 20, March in April 2020. Um, so I'll just share with you where, where I was at. So I had actually just proposed to Katie um, that January, and we were obviously, as a result, planning our wedding. And because Katie is just a superb wedding planner, by mid-March, our, our wedding was just like done. We had our venue, we had the dress, we had my suit, everything was ready to go. We were getting ready to send out our invitations, and then just like that, COVID happens. And all of our plans are just gone with the wind. They're, they're up and away. <laughs> um, and our ministry, like everything that we were doing, we had to cancel a spring break trip with our college students. And we were like, oh, you know, we'll, like the university was like, we'll be back in like a month and a half, and it'll be fine. And then the weeks started to grind by, and we just saw, like, the, it just got longer and longer. And we're like, oh, my gosh. Like, we're not coming back. And as isolation grew, as uncertainty over what would happen with our wedding grew, um, as this kind of sense of existential dread grew, it became a significant season of hardship for me. And then in the midst of all of this, I came across the psalm that we'll be looking at today, Psalm chapter 107. And it became one of the most impactful passages of my life over that year, as it became a significant source of hope for me in the time of hardship. And so as we dive into this psalm, as we dive into Psalm 107, that's kind of the greater theme of what we're going to be looking at today, hope in the midst of hardship. And as we will see when we read this together, Psalm 107 is actually structured in a series of five vignettes or five stories that each explore a slightly different angle of how God meets us in the midst of our hardship, in the midst of our hurt. It honestly almost reads like five individual poems within a poem. It's like poem inception, poemception, poception. Um, but these five, all th- these five poems, they all center around three greater characteristics of who God is. And it's these three characteristics that we can really draw our source of hope from. And my prayer is that it will become a source of hope for you as well. 
And so then following us looking at these three characteristics, then we'll look at two responses that we can have as a result as we walk through seasons of hardship in the midst of our lives. So we've got three characteristics and then two responses. And with that, let's jump in to Psalm 107. And we'll start in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their souls fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they came to a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the word of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and grew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. Let, he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. There they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. But when they are diminished and brought low through oppression and evil and strife, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of the affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. 
Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. It's just a beautiful, beautiful psalm. And so, in the midst of this, what is the first characteristic of God that we can pull out, that we can see? And it's this. The first thing that we can see is that God is sovereign. God's sovereignty. And I know as Christians, we kind of tend to throw around words and pretend like we know what they are. I do that a lot, and I tend to actually not know what I'm saying. So I got some definitions. (laughs) Um, So God's sovereignty, um, the best way that I can define it is that it means that God rules over all of creation. Or to put it even more simply, that God is in complete control. He is the one who is in complete control. And this characteristic of God, it runs all throughout the psalm, and we see it in the desert story that he's in control, in the prison story, he's, he's the primary actor on both sides. He heals the disease and the story of sickness. But the one where it really shines through for me is the story of the storm in verses 23 through 32. Right, so it, it, we see it in, in 24 and 25. It says that they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he, God, commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. And then again in verse 29, he, God, made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. God is the one who's in control, in complete control in the midst of the storm. And we're going to have another Bible geek moment here. But the um, imagery of chaotic waters appears over and over and over and over again in the Bible. Um, we see it, out, we're not going to go there, but we see it at the very beginning in Genesis 1. The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the deep. It's the image of the Spirit of God hovering over chaotic waters. In the flood story, it's like a decreation account as, as the chaotic waters crash back in over all creation. And Noah is saved through the midst of chaotic waters. And then again in Exodus, we have Moses leading the Israelites through the midst of the Red Sea, through the midst of chaotic waters. And so this theme of God saving people in the midst of chaos is repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. And it's that same theme that this psalmist is pulling from here. That God is in complete control even in the midst of chaos. That it doesn't bother him, that he has it all with him. Right, so that's God, and then we can contrast that to the sailors in this part, right? How are they doing? Because they start off, and it seems fine, right? They go down to the waters to do business. It's like business as usual, um, and I think we can all kind of relate to that. We tend to go about business as usual, and all of a sudden, there's this great storm, and any semblance of control that they have is just completely gone. As they're reeling around, it says like that they're you can like picture like this tiny little ship bobbing on massive waves with sailors just kind of like trying to stay on the boat in the first place, let alone being in control as they cry out to the Lord in the midst of that chaos. Right? And so we often think that we're the ones that are in control, that we're sovereign over our own lives, but honestly, we're fooling ourselves. And generally, it just takes a little storm to show that reality to us. Right? And so when I think of this, like I think back to Katie and I's wedding. Because I was just like those sailors. We were just going about business as usual, you know, planning a wedding. I'm in college ministry, so that means I go to a lot of weddings. (laughs) So I was like, oh, mine's going to be fine. And then, of course, for my wedding, you know, there's a a once-in-a-century pandemic that just says, hello, I'm here now. (laughs) Deal with it. Um, And I don't want to minimize what this pandemic has been 
for many people. It's been a season of significant hardship, of economic ruin, um, of significant loss of life. Um, but one of the most significant ways that Katie and I felt it was in our wedding. And so COVID comes and any semblance of control that I had was just, was just gone. And I was not happy about it. Man, I was like angry for weeks. I was like, God, I go to so many weddings and now it's mine. And this is what we got to do. <laughs> um, and as it just became more and more clear that it just really wasn't going to happen the way that we planned, I was reading this psalm and I was like, you know what, God, like you're the one that's in control and not me. And that's been true from the moment I proposed to Katie, from the moment that we started dating, from the moment I was born and long before that. And so as I began to think on his sovereignty and his control, it just began to give me this deep sense of peace and hope. So I was like, you know what? It's chaos around me right now. It really is. But God's got this. And in the midst of that, I just began to pray. I was like, God, you know, I don't know what's, what's best in this season. And I know that this is a small request in the midst of everything that's happening in the world. But God, if there's any way that we can have just a normal wedding of some kind, that would just be a huge blessing. And I just prayed that once a week while I was going on a prayer walk. And then God answered because he is in control. <laughs> Um, I don't know if you guys remember, but there was like a small two-week window in the middle of June where California suddenly opened up again. Restaurants were open and stuff, and that was the two-week window that our wedding was in. <laughs> and so we had a much smaller one. We still had it at our venue out on a hilltop. We were socially distanced, and we had temperature scanners, and people wore masks. But we were still able to have what felt like a normal wedding. We were still able to rejoice with the people who came out with us. Um, and nobody got COVID, which was great. <laughs> and then we left for our honeymoon, and like three days later, like California was closed again, and the window was shut. But God is sovereign, and he is in complete control. And so because of that, we can find hope even in the midst of our hardship, because if there's one thing that we can be sure of, even in the midst of all of the chaos, even in the midst of our storms in life, it is that God is the one who is in control that he's got this, that he will see us through, whether it's stopping the storm or whether it's standing right next to us being, don't worry, I'm here. He's in control. And so the first characteristic of God is that it gives us, that gives us hope is that he is sovereign. Now the second one that we're going to look at is that God is a redeemer or God's redemption. God is a redeemer. And this is announced right at the beginning of the psalm, right in Psalm um, right in verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. And again, just like sovereignty, redeemed is one of those words that we Christians throw around a lot. And I know that I struggle to understand. I was, I was actually working through this and I was like, man, you know, if somebody asked me what redeemed was and I didn't look up a definition, I'd be like, kind of like, uh, you know, it's kind of like this. Anyway, I looked up a definition. Uh, Gospel Coalition says this, redemption means to secure the release or recovery of persons or things by the payment of a price. It is a covenantal legal term closely associated with ransom, atonement, substitution, deliverance, and thus salvation. And to put it more simply, another way that I would put it is that, it, that redemption is God's activity of rescue. It's his activity of rescue. And a key component of redemption is that it costs God something. And what it costs him, we'll, we'll kind of get to that towards the end of, 
our time together today, but redemption always costs God something. And it's because God is sovereign that he has the ability to rescue us, right? Because if God wasn't in complete control, he wouldn't be able to rescue us even if he wanted to. But because God's sovereignty feeds into his redemption. Because he is in complete control, he can also redeem us. In our passage, in our passage today, it's the central component of all five stories. And each story highlights a different way that God can redeem us. And so we're going to look briefly at each of these stories of God's redemption. So the first one we see is in Psalm 107, 4 through 9. And, and the first way that we see God redeeming is that God satisfies the longing. He satisfies the longing. And the way that this first story describes it, it, it kind of uses the metaphor of a desert. And as we are people wandering in a desert, se- desperately searching for a place to settle, and live, right? And so if you can just picture yourself in a desert with no food or water, trying to find a place to go, and just like you're getting thirstier and thirstier and hungrier and hungrier, desperately looking for any source of release to satisfy this deep longing for food and for water. And when I read that, particularly verses four and five, that, that's what really caught my attention first in the psalm in the midst of the pandemic. As disappointment and after disappointment began to pile up, as I grew increasingly isolated from the world around me, as Zoom fatigue began to set in, I began to long for connection, for rest from this continual onslaught of just dreadful information and fear. And it really did begin to feel like a desert, as if my soul was wasting away within me. And this deep, soul-destroying longing is something that we are all familiar with at some level, I would think. You know, perhaps you're longing for deep connection or significant other, for purpose or direction, for justice, you know, whatever it may be, we all have these deep-seated longings. And so we search for that satisfaction in our world. We, we go to all of these different places. We go to relationships. We go to um, pornography, we go to, to, to protest, we go to all of these different things to try and find satisfaction, to try and find it. But ultimately, this world is a desert, and anything that we find will not last. It will not satisfy forever. It turns to sand in our mouth, and it just disappears, and then we get even more longing and more desperate, and we continually continue to search until finally, with chapped lips and a weak whisper, we turn to God and we cry out, God, save me. I need you to deliver me from this. I need you to satisfy me. Because he is the only one who can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. And that's how this part ends. For he satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry soul he fills with good things. So God rescues by satisfying the longing soul. Second, God frees the captive. He frees the captive. And we see this in the next story, right? In Psalm 10, uh, verses 10 through 16. And I love the last verse of this psalm. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. It's almost like God is like an action hero, kicking down the door and like cutting away our chains. And the way that I've experienced this psalm is in my own experience and my own struggle Um, of sexual sin and of my own addiction to pornography that I struggled with, right? And it's kind of a long story, 
But in short, like I was addicted to pornography for over seven years of my life. I was like in this dungeon of despair and I could not get free. I would try to kick down the door of bronze. I would try to remove the shackles from me. And no matter how hard I tried, I always just fell back into the dungeon, pulled back by these shackles. And then finally, after years and years and years of striving, I turned to the Lord and said, God, I need you for this freedom. I can't do this on my own. I can't fight this on my own. I need you. And God, in his graciousness, delivered me. And it took a while. It took a couple of years of fighting alongside the Lord. But eventually, he freed me from my iron shackles. He, cut, he kicked down the door of bronze. And for three years now, I can say that I've been set free from my addiction to pornography. And so what is it for you? What is it that you feel chained to in your life? Or perhaps you feel like that you've completely lost hope, feeling as if you're sitting in darkness in the shadow of death, enslaved to sorrow or depression, enslaved to addiction, enslaved to pornography, whatever it is, cry out to the Lord. Look to him, because we cannot free ourselves out of our own strength. But by the power and the love of God, we who are held captive are set free from our slavery. So the second way in which God redeems us is that he frees the captive. Third, God heals the afflicted. He heals the afflicted. And again, we see this in the next story, in verses 17 through 22. As God heal, it's a story of God healing sickness. And this could both be in the literal sense in that God rescues the sick by healing them, but also metaphorically as it relates to the brokenness that we've experienced as a result of living in a sinful and fallen world. And sometimes that brokenness, that woundedness is as a result of our own sin. But other times you may be afflicted by wrongs that have been done to you. Maybe you've been a victim of bullying or abuse. Maybe somebody left you or, or some strife and division. Maybe you had a loved one pass away. Maybe there's strife and division in the midst of your family. And it's left this deep, festering wound in your soul. And again, that's something that I've experienced as well. And I think if we haven't experienced it yet, we all will. That's just a reality of living in this world that we live in. But again, when I, when I think about this, I, I think about my first ever dating relationship back when I was freshman Thailand in college. Young and bright-eyed and not a believer yet. <laughs> um, but I entered into my first ever dating relationship. I really liked her. Um, we went on a couple of dates. and I thought, man, this is great. And then after a few weeks, I found out that she was already cheating on me. And man, it just broke my soul. And in that moment, I didn't know it at the time, but there was a wound that was stuck in my heart. And the enemy used that opportunity to implant a lie in me that if anybody saw who I really was, they could not love me, that I was an unlovable person. And there was this deep, festering wound. But when I found the Lord... I began to look into this and to dig into it. And, and in God, I found out that God does love me in spite of all of my flaws, because there's many of those. <laughs> um, that he does care for me, that he does value me, even though he knows every single thing about me. 
And again, through, through some work and through years, I, as I prayed and as I worked with the Lord, he delivered me. He revealed to me that this was a lie that I believed, and he brought in truths to help heal me. He allowed me to forgive the person who implanted it in me. So God is the one who heals. Even in these deep wounds of the soul, God can heal. And so if you're experiencing woundedness right now, I would beg you, cry out to him and experience his healing, experience his love for you. So that's our third one. Fourth, God delivers the distressed. He delivers the distressed. And we've seen this, and we see this in verses 23 through 32, right? Our storm story. And we kind of already looked at this one in depth um, when we were talking about God's sovereignty, so we won't spend too long here. But whatever storm that you might be in, whatever storm that you may encounter, know that if you are in Christ, you have the freedom to cry out to God in the midst of it. That God is right there with you, that he is in control, and because of that, we can have peace in the midst of our storm knowing that he can deliver us from our distress, knowing that he can redeem us from the midst of the chaos around us. And that brings us to our last way that God redeems us. He lifts up the oppressed. God lifts up the oppressed. And we see this in the last part of the psalm, in verses 33 through 42. And the form of this story is a little different than the first four, but it still clearly shows God's redemption. It displays God as the caretaker for the oppressed and the disenfranchised, right? He, he basically builds an oasis for them in the desert so that the hungry can live, so that they can build a city, and he blesses them so that they can be fruitful and multiply. Yet even in the midst of that, I, I love that this psalm doesn't try to, you know, sugarcoat things because they're blessed, and then all of a sudden, in verse 39, there's oppression. But when the disenfranchised are oppressed... God is the one who fights for them. God is the one who holds the leaders accountable who are oppressing. And the psalm is so strongly worded that it says that God pours contempt on them. But what does he do for the needy, the disenfranchised, the oppressed? He lifts them up. There's another psalm that puts it this way. It says that God lifts up the needy out of the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He lifts them up, and then later in the psalm, we see that he becomes caretakers for their families. Like a gentle shepherd, the oppressed become God's flocks. And so God redeems the oppressed by lifting them up out of their oppression. So God's activity of rescue, God's redemption, is displayed by the way that he satisfies the longing. It's displayed by the way he frees the captive. It's displayed by the way he heals the afflicted the way he delivers the distressed, and the way he lifts up the oppressed. And so now that we've looked at God's sovereignty, and now that we've looked at God's redemption, that brings us to our last characteristic, God's steadfast love. God's steadfast love. And honestly, every characteristic of God is, is incredibly important, equally important for, for different reasons. But for me personally, when it comes to God's interaction with me, when it comes to God's interaction with you, for, for me at least, this one, God's love takes the cake, right? Because if God is sovereign, if he's in complete control and he's not loving, that's tyranny. That's terrifying. If God can redeem, but he's not loving, then why would he? 
So without God's love, these other two are kind of mute. And, and without God's sovereignty, his love also is kind of mute. So you see, like, they're all kind of interconnected. God's steadfast love is the motivator of his activity towards us. And it's written all over the psalm, over and over and over again. Right? Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. It's repeated four times. Why? Because without the love of God, there is no hope. Without the love of God, we're stuck in the desert. Without the love of God, we're stuck in the dungeon. Without the love of God, we are wasting away. Without the love of God, we're in the midst of our storm on our own in the middle of chaos. Without the love of God, the oppressed stay down. But because of God's love, there is hope. Because his love is steadfast and unchanging, even in the midst of my sinfulness, even in the midst of our rebellion against God, even in the midst of any and every circumstance, we have hope. Because we know that God loves us and that he longs to relate to us through his love. We know that God wants to redeem us if we would but turn because he loves us. And before we move on to this point, I I just want to stop and ask the question, do you actually believe this? Do you believe that God's love towards you, if you are in Christ, do you believe that God's love towards you is completely and utterly unchanging, that it's steadfast? Because as I was writing this sermon, I had to wrestle with the fact that I struggle to believe that a lot. I tend to picture God as like this, kind of stern father figure who's just kind of waiting for me to mess up and then, bam, justice comes. Judgment comes. Um, Just waiting to, to discipline me. Just waiting to get at me. Like a harsh judge. But that's not the love that is depicted in this psalm. I think that I have to try and earn my, like earn God's love for me. That if I work hard enough, God will care about me. But again, that's not what we see in this psalm, right? Each and every one of these stories, the people, what, what the, the only thing that they do is they cry out to God. They don't do anything else. They cry out to God and he delivers them. And so instead of God as this kind of disciplinary figure that I tend to picture, I, I like to think of him in a different way. Um, in a, a story actually that comes from my mom and the way that she interacted with her father, so my grandfather, my opa, he was German, um, and he was a pretty significant minister in his time. Um, he led major conferences in Germany, in Amsterdam, in Brazil, in Jamaica. He preached the gospel in over 120 countries, right? He was an incredibly busy man with the weight of the world on his shoulders. But my mom has hundreds of memories of him just kind of sitting at his desk working on whatever it would be. And, you know, my mom, just as a little girl, would walk in and say, Papa, hast du Zeit? Which is German for, Dad, do you have time? And she said, without fail, he would kind of shove his chair back from his desk, and he said, for you, I always have time. And she would sit on his lap, and they would talk. And that's how our relationship with God is. We never have to try and work our way to him. We never have to try and be good enough We can just run to him and say, God, do you have time? And God says, yes, 
For you, I always have time. Come to me, cry out to me. Let me minister to you. And the joy that we have in God's steadfast love and how it can bring us so much hope in the midst of our hardships. And so with that, we've explored these tremendous hope-filled characteristics of who God is, that he is sovereign, that he is redemptive, and that he relates to us with steadfast, unchanging love. So then what, does, what actions does the psalm call us to take? Because there's not many, right? God is the primary actor in this entire story. But what are we called to do? How are we called to respond? And there's two ways. The first is this. Consider what God has done. Consider what God has done. The very last verse of the psalm invites us to do this. Psalm 107, 43. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. And so if you are in the midst of pain, hardship, strife, longing, affliction, distress, a storm, if you're held captive by some sin, some sin, if you're being downtrodden, if, if, you're, if you're just down because of the oppression that you see, remember the steadfast love of the Lord. Think on it, meditate on it every single day. Remember all of the times that God has delivered you already in your life. And take your hope and your strength in him. And remember our ultimate hope, God's ultimate display of his steadfast love, his greatest work of rescue and redemption in what Jesus has already done for us. The fact that the Son of God chose to come down, leave the comfort of heaven and come down to this earth, which is pretty messed up, to, to become a person like you and me, to experience the same frailties, the same temptations that we do. But as God's Son, Jesus never sinned. He was God's perfect son. And yet he was falsely accused and he chose to die on a cross. And in so doing, he took the punishment that we all deserved. He paid what was due through his death. And he gave to us his perfect life. And he conquered all of our sin. He conquered death. He conquered everything that we feared when he raised from the dead three days later. And because of that, we can run to the Father. We can, we can say, do you have time? And he says, yes, come to me, relate to me. I love you. Because of what Jesus has done for us, because of his finished work of rescue and redemption. So in Jesus, Jesus is the one in whom we find ultimate satisfaction. Because he declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He ultimately satisfies us. Jesus is the one who frees us. For as Paul says in Galatians 5, for freedom Christ has set you free. Therefore, stand firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Jesus is the one who heals the afflicted for he declares those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is the one who lifts up the oppressed, for he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And story after story, Jesus ministers to and empowers the disenfranchised of his time as he lifts them up to make them sit with princes. And then finally, Jesus delivers the distressed. And not only does he deliver the distressed, he goes even further than that. He delivers the deceased. 
Because before we knew God, we were all completely and utterly dead, having no power to save ourselves in our sin, in our rebellion. But in Jesus, we are made alive again. For as he says in John, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And again, in that famous verse, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so if you are in a state of hopelessness right now, remember what God has done. Remember the gospel. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember the finished work of Christ and find hope in him in the midst of your hardship. And so that's our first response. We're called to consider what God has done. And then secondly, we're called to cry out to God in the midst of our hardship. To cry out to God in the midst of our hardship. Right? That's something that we see in pretty much every one of these stories. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. So whether you feel like you are in a desert or in darkness and shadow of death or afflicted and fading or you're at your wit's end in what seems to be a terrible storm, cry out to God for deliverance. Stop trying to make it on your own. Stop trying to be good enough. Cry out to God and ask for his help and watch as in his steadfast love he answers you. And you know, maybe right now you're sitting there and you're like, that's, that's great, but I, I don't know Jesus really. I've never really made him Lord. I've never really experienced him as my savior. And maybe right now you're experiencing longing or held captive or afflicted or storm-tossed or beaten down by the oppressive nature of this world. And maybe you think there's no way that God will listen to me. He doesn't want me. He doesn't care about me. There's too much stuff going on. How could he care about me? And to that I would say, I know that he cares about you because he cares about me. And I'm pretty much the messed up pers- most messed up person I've ever met. And so if he loves and cares about me, I know that he loves you. And this message, this response to cry out to the Lord is for you too. Because Paul says in Romans that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone includes you. And so right now, if you don't know Jesus, cry out to him in your heart and be saved. Trust in all that he has done so that he may give you life. And if you're unsure, you don't know what to do, please, please talk to a friend who you might have here. Talk to Pastor Obed. Talk to myself. We would love to pray with you so that you can join with us so that you can join with the author of this psalm with this song of joy as you experience his steadfast love and praise him for his wondrous works not just towards all of humankind but now towards you specifically so with that let's pray heavenly father thank you so much for your word lord thank you for the way that you are sovereign that you redeem us Lord, for the way that you love us. God, I pray that whatever we're going through right now, that we would run to you, or that we would consider what you have done on the cross for us, that we would remember it and draw hope from it. And because of that, we would feel the courage to cry out to you in the midst of our hardship. Lord, I pray this in your name. Amen.